Thank you for listening to City Awakening Podcast. City Awakening is a gospel-centered church located in East Orlando that plants new churches, striving to be a multicultural, multi-generational church. For more information about City Awakening, follow us on social media or visit www.cityawakening.org. Well, good morning. My name is Lewis. I'm lead pastor here at City Awakening. Um, Welcome to those of you who are here on site and to those of you watching online. We're glad you're joining us online. At this time, let's go ahead and dismiss our children at Children's Church. And if you didn't get a chance to check your child in, please see our children's ministry leaders in the back and they would be more than happy to assist you with that. Before we get into today's message, I just want to remind you that there is still time for you to be able to sponsor a child who's living in poverty uh, through compassion. You know, one of the things we mentioned last week was that we want to push back darkness in our lives, in our relationship, in our city, in our world, helping us to even fulfill the vision that we feel like Jesus has given our church, which is to reach people and to reach the world with the gospel. Well, last week we had 15 households make the decision to sponsor a child who is living in poverty, which means there are now 15 children who are getting relief from poverty because of people here at City Awakening making that decision. Can we praise God for that? Yeah. You know, Compassion is, is an organization, a nonprofit organization that is helping to push back the darkness of poverty that exists in our world. And for $35 a month, you can sponsor a child who's living in poverty and you can actually have written communication with that child. That $35 a month is going to provide a child in poverty with things like food, clothing, uh, an education, and even an opportunity for them to hear the good news of the gospel being proclaimed, the good news of Jesus, even gives them some health care as well. And so if you're interested in sponsoring a child, if you haven't made that decision yet, we're going to give you some next steps after the service for you to be able to have the opportunity to do that. None of this is ever a guilt thing. Okay, this is, you know, a love thing, right? We love, we love Jesus. We love the people in our city. We love the people in our church. We love the people in the world. And so we want to try and push back the darkness that exists in the world. And so if you are interested in doing that, we'll give you some next steps. But just know if you choose to sponsor a child, you are helping a child come out of poverty in this world, but you're also helping us to fulfill our vision to reach people and reach the world with the gospel. So we would encourage you to consider that. Uh, We'll actually be talking about that even um, for the next couple weeks. We'll give you some more opportunities to do that. Um, You can also see over here in our next steps table after the service, okay? Uh, That being said, today we are continuing a teaching series that we've been doing on a book of the Bible called Romans. This series is all about renewing your mind for the transformation of your life. And we're going to talk about specifically today is really a part two of last week. You know, last week we talked about the doctrine of total depravity, and so we're going to talk about the doctrine of of sin today, which everybody struggles with, okay? Everybody wrestles with sin in their life. Even if you are a skeptic, you know that this is true. You know that there are things that you want to change about your life, but you have been powerless to change those things. Your willpower hasn't just failed you once. It's failed you repeatedly, Okay, so what you need and what we all need isn't more religious laws or even post-it notes notes telling us, you know, to do this or to not do this. Because we already failed to live out the religious laws that we have and the post-it notes that we currently have. And so what makes us think having more of those things is actually going to help us? Our willpower has not just failed us once, it's failed us repeatedly. Your willpower, my willpower can help us to change some things, but it can't help us to change everything. It can't help us to change the deep-rooted sin issues that we have in our hearts. 
And so what we need is, is we need a greater power than our willpower to help save us and to help transform the sinful depravity that is in our hearts. And so this is what we're going to talk about today, okay? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and and turn them over to Romans chapter 3. If you're new to your Bible, you can find Romans in the last quarter part of your Bible. We will also have uh, the words on the screen for you. We'll be in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 22. And for those of you taking notes today, this is the title of the message. Can we change our sin from within? All right, can we fix our sin from within? And this is the big idea of the message. You need a greater power to help you fix the sin problem within you. Right, you need a greater power to help you fix the sin problem within you, so, so do I. All right, we'll see that as the text unfolds. Um, give you a little bit of context here. Uh, so the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, who was an enemy and a skeptic of Christians at one point. And then he has an interaction with Jesus that changes his life, and he becomes a Christian. Then a little over 20 years later, he writes this letter to Christians who are living in in Rome, and he writes this letter to teach them about Jesus and to teach them about the life-transformative power of the gospel that changed his life. In chapters 1 to 2, Paul is building a case for why all of us need God's grace. And he says it's because of our sinful depravity. No skeptic and no believer can sit here and claim that our hearts and emotions are always good, that our passions and desires are always good, that our our actions are always good, that our minds and thoughts are always good. Paul's point in chapters 1 to 2 and even 3 is that we all sin at some point in our lives, and so therefore there is no escaping God's judgment on our lives. We have either sinned against God's moral laws that we have come to learn about in the Bible, or we've sinned against the moral laws that have been in our conscience, he says. And so because we have all sinned, because our willpower has continually failed us, then we are all in need of God's grace to forgive us, to save us, to transform our sinful hearts, the sinful state that we are in. Well, in chapter 3, what Paul's going to do is he's going to press that point a little bit further by by even saying that our religious laws aren't even enough. They're not the solution to us overcoming the sinful depravity that we're in. Okay, he's saying the religious laws, they're not not, going to help us either. Okay, so what is the solution? Well, Paul's going to tell us in this chapter. All right, Romans chapter 3 verses 1 to 22 says this. So what advantage does a Jew have? See, the Jews believed that they had an advantage over the rest of humanity because they had a covenant relationship with God. And so this concept of total depravity, this concept that we are all equally stuck in in sin, in this sinful depravity of our hearts, is going to cause the Jews and maybe even some other people to say, "Well, well, what is the point then in having a covenant relationship with God if we are all considered equally sinful in our hearts? What's the point in all that? What's the advantage to a covenant relationship with God? Okay, well, Paul says that the Jews actually did have one advantage. He says, verse 2, they were entrusted with the very words of God. In other words, he's talking about the Old Testament part of the Bible there. He's saying that the Jews actually did have an advantage in the sense that they had the moral laws of God given to them in the Old Testament part part of the Bible. But with that knowledge also came greater responsibility because they should have known better. They should have known better than to break God's moral laws that he had given to them 
in the Scripture. But they still failed to live out those moral laws, which goes to prove Paul's point even more, goes to prove our, the, the sinful depravity of our hearts even more, and that we're stuck in that, that our willpower is not enough to even get us to do the right thing all the time. I mean, think about it, right? The Jews knew the right things they were supposed to do, yet they still failed to do it, just like us. We all fail. We know some of the right things that we're supposed to do. We still fail to do it. You either know the right things to do because you know the moral laws that have been given to you in the Bible, or you fail to do the right things that you know to do in your moral conscience. Either way, we all fail to live out those right things, thus proving that we are stuck in this sinful depravity state, that our willpower is not enough to change and to transform. This is what Paul is saying here. Verse 3, what then? If, if some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. In other words, he's saying that, you know, God promised to have a covenant relationship with the Jews, so, so why is he actually judging them for, for being unfaithful to him, for being unrighteous to them? Doesn't that nullify God's faithfulness to the Jews? I mean, does that mean that God isn't faithful in fulfilling his promises if he's going to judge them because of their unfaithfulness? Paul says, absolutely not. And one of the reasons he says absolutely not is because Jesus actually fulfills the covenant relationship promise. He actually opens up the door for salvation for both Jews and non-Jews. He offers his hand of covenant friendship, covenant relationship with anybody who's willing to put their faith and trust in him. See, what Paul's point is, is Paul's saying that, that everybody is unfaithful to the Lord. Okay? Everybody is unfaithful except for God. He says God is the only one who is faithful. Jesus is the only one who is faithful. And he extends his hand, his faithful hand to us. And when we receive that hand, he'll never let it go. Once he has our hand, he won't let that hand go. Why? Because he's the only one who is faithful, not us. That's what he's saying. Verse 9, what then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. He says, are are the Jews any better than non-Jews? Are Christians any better than non-Christians? Are believers any better than skeptics? Paul says, not when it comes to to our sinful depravity. He says we, we are all under sin, meaning we are all under sin's power. We are all under sin's power whenever we rely on our own willpower instead of relying upon God's power. Whenever we do that, our willpower will eventually fail us. We will stumble in sin and we will be in need of God's grace to restore us again. Whenever we rely on our power instead of God's power, we're going to stumble in sin and need his restoration again. And we have all sinned and we all continue to sin whenever we rely on our willpower instead of God's power. The doctrine of sin is the belief that every human being has has thoughts, hearts, Actions and words that aren't in alignment with God. The doctrine of sin is the belief that we have all failed to love God and to love others in some way, some capacity, 
with our thoughts, hearts, actions, and words. And Paul is about to give us several examples of ways that we do that using several Old Testament scriptures, uh, quotes that he has, right? He's, he's about to give us several examples, several ways that, that we all have, have failed under the power of sin. When we're trying to rely on our willpower instead of God's power. Here comes the first one, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. And he says there's no one who understands, meaning we all sin with our thoughts. We all sin with our thoughts. In chapter 1, he says that that we suppress the truth of God for lies, which we see um, happening very often in our Western American culture today. I mean, we see in our culture today a rapid decline for truth. There is a rapid, and it seems to be excelling, decline for truth in, in our news media, in social media, in politics, in our school system, in our universities. We have taken the intellectual gift that God has given us and we've used it to argue against God whenever his truths start to rub us the wrong way or we don't like the truths that he's, he's given us. Instead of trusting God, we argue with God. Instead of trusting God, we debate God. Instead of trusting what God says, we trust what the culture says. Instead of trusting God, we trust the culture. We sin with our thoughts against God, and then we also sin with our thoughts against other people. So think about this for a minute, okay? Imagine that you had a um, teleprompter or maybe a megaphone coming from your forehead, right? Anytime you thought something, it blurted it out. Oh, woo-wee, we're having church. (laughs) I heard it, right? Could you imagine that? That people could either read your mind, your thoughts, or the megaphone would would, would share it. If you had to choose, if I had to choose, if we had to make a choice between we we would want people to be able to read our thoughts or to be able to hear our thoughts being projected outward, or keep our thoughts to ourself. We we choose to keep our thoughts to ourselves, right? Why? Because we sin with our thoughts. We sometimes sin with our thoughts against God, and we sometimes sin with our thoughts against other people. We're all guilty of this, okay? Paul goes on to the next one. Again, verse 11, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. He says there's no one who seeks God, meaning we, we sin with our hearts. We sin with our hearts by seeking other things more than we seek God. We sometimes seek things like our careers, our money, success, sports, materialism, the approval of other people more than we seek God. Christians, we often are, are guilty, and even some, some non-Christians, you know, maybe, maybe you know, you're, you're a skeptic who sometimes prays when you're in a time of need. You know, a lot of times what we do is we, we also will seek the gifts of God more than we seek the God of the gifts. We will seek for our prayers and needs to be met more than we seek the God who can meet our prayers and our needs. Paul's saying that 
that it isn't us who, who seeks and pursues God like we should. It's God who seeks and pursues us even though he shouldn't. Jesus says this in, in Luke chapter 15 when he tells the parable of the, of the lost sheep, right? He's, the, he's, he'll leave the 99, he says, to seek and to save the one lost sheep. In Luke 19, he says, I came to seek and to save the lost. See, it isn't us who is seeking Jesus. We don't start out seeking Jesus. It's Jesus who starts out seeking us. And then in John chapter 14, he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. But instead of following him as the way, seeking him as the way, Paul says that we have turned away. We have turned away from God thinking that our way is better than his way. And it's the lie inside every teenager's heart. It is the lie inside every college student's heart. It is the lie inside every single person, married person's parent, child, every young and old person's heart. It's that we sometimes think that our way is better than his way, and we turn away. Even when God has been so gracious to us to to pour out his love on us and to turn our hearts to him, to where we say yes to our relationship with him and we respond to, to faith in him and we become a follower of his, even when his grace is poured out on us and we, and we start to follow him and our hearts are turned towards him, we find, we find our hearts still wanting to pull away from him. We, we find our hearts resisting him. We, we find our hearts even being quick to pull away from him when it comes to our quiet times. All right, I feel this all the time. You know, go, go to have some quiet time with, with the Lord and, and celebrate in the fact, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for drawing my heart to you to want to have this quiet time with you. And then as I'm in that quiet time, everything is tugging at my heart, pulling me away from him. All the things that I've got to get done for the day, Lord, you understand, right? So even when our hearts are drawn to him, we find our hearts pulling away from him. We find our hearts wanting to quickly move on from, from him. This is what Paul is meaning when it comes to seeking the Lord. None of us can say we, can, we have truly sought the Lord above all things and all the time. No, we have, we have all sinned even when it comes to our hearts towards the Lord. Again, verse 11, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good. Not even one. He says there's no one who does good meaning we sin with our, with our actions. You know, we, we sin with, with, with our actions, with the things we do. He's not saying that, that we can't ever do good things. He is saying that, that we don't have 100% pure selfless motives whenever we do good things. We can't, so this is a lot about motive. Okay? And so, for example, you know, some, some people, they'll, they'll do good things because it makes them feel good inside. And I'm going to do this good because you know, doing good things may, makes me feel, well, that, that's a selfish intent. Right? You're doing a good thing because it makes you feel good. Some people do good things because they want a tax write-off, right? It's true. Some people do, do good things because they want to gain recognition from people. They want to gain the approval of other people, or maybe they want to gain the approval of God. A lot of Christians can be guilty of this. We, we maybe do certain things and do good things or even look at coming to church as a, let me, let me do this good thing because, you know, I want to gain God's approval for my life. 
Some people will even do good things when, when it comes, you know, doing something good to be able to get something in return from the person that they're doing something good for. How often do married couples negotiate? I'll do this for you if you do this for me. Children, I'll do chores for money. Pay up. I remember my father, man, 8 o'clock in the morning. If I didn't get up in high school, I started to stop doing a lot of my chores. I didn't get up. He'd mow the lawn right by my window. Boom. Boom, boom. Nonstop till I couldn't sleep. I'm like, all right, he'd do it all day long. Till, you know. A lot of times I was like, hey, pops, I'm going to do this good for you, but, but what, are you, what are you and mom going to give me? Hey, how about food, clothing, shelter? Right? How many of you in the business world? Right, a lot of times you, you have to go and take people out on, on, on a dinner, elaborate meals. You have extravagant, you have, you have a line item for that to give some extravagant, why? To close the deal, to get something in return. So your company allows you a certain amount of freedom and expenses to woo the potential client or to, to get a bigger sale and a bigger deal. See, a lot of times we do good things maybe to get something in return, even unintendedly. See, this is about motive. None of us has 100% pure selfless motives when it comes to doing good deeds, subconsciously or consciously. That's true. Even if you can claim that you did an act that was 100% purely selfless, Paul would just come back and say, well, that was an act of God's common grace at work in and through your life. Because without God's common grace, we would sin all the time, always. Without God's common grace, we would always sin with our actions, including our motives. Okay, this is about actions. Again, verse 12, there is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viperous venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Talk about a Hallmark card, right? Happy Valentine's Day, you venomous-lipped person. Not very, right, you know, hallmarky. Very blunt, straightforward. Know what he's saying here? He's saying we sin with our words. That's what he's saying. He's, we, we sin with our words. Now imagine if, uh, if there was a recording of the things that you said this past week, a recording of all the things that you said to maybe the strangers that you talk to, your coworkers, your classmates, your family and friends, what would that recording reveal about your words? Would it reveal that there was some gossip and slander? Would it reveal that there was some bragging and some boasting? Would it reveal that there was some cursing some, some venomous words, some hateful words, some hurtful words. Would it, would it reveal that maybe you said the right thing, but you said it in the wrong way? What would your recording reveal about your words? You know, Jesus' little brother, James, he, he says what this recording would, would reveal. In James chapter 3, he he says, the tongue is full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord, and with it, we curse people. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. You know what? He's right. Is he not? 
He's right. In fact, some of us know that's right just from this morning because some of us can't even make it a car ride to church without our family fighting. Some of us can't even make it to church without us having to yell at our kids. And so without, you know, man, man, shut your little mouth. We're going to go praise Jesus today. (laughs) Blessing and cursing, right? And, And then we have snarky comments back to the parents sometimes, right? Well, mom and dad, wait a minute, I, I can't do both. Can't shut my mouth and praise Jesus at the same time. So which is it? Boy, I'm, t- I'm, I'm a Bible thump you if you don't stop, right? Blessing and cursing out of the same mouth. That's what James says. Paul says that our, our words are like the venom on our lips, the the venom of a viper. In other words, they are a deadly, they can be a deadly poison that can kill people emotionally. You know, we've all grown up hearing the phrase, you know, sticks and stones may, may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not true. It's not true at all. Sometimes words actually hurt way worse than sticks and stones do. We have all been hurt by words, or we have all hurt others with our words, and that even includes our written communication, our written words through texts, emails, or even social media. Some of us, when we text, we throw daggers with our texts. And some of us, you know, we we make fun of people with memes on social media. In our technological culture, we are very quick, people are very quick to tear people down instead of help build people up, to cut people instead of heal people. We all sin with our words, either be that vocal, verbal, or written. And so how are you measuring up in this? Now, how's, how's your, your thoughts, your, your heart, your actions, your words? Do you always have good thoughts about God and others? Do you always have a good heart that's always seeking God above all other things? Do you always have good actions with 100% pure, selfless motives? Do you always use good words, be that written or vocal? Listen, we've all failed at this. We have all sinned in some way or some capacity with our thoughts, hearts, actions, and words. You know what Paul's doing in these, in these three chapters, these first three chapters of Romans? What he's doing is he's giving us an MRI of our soul. He's basically showing us what the problem is in our soul so that we can come to rely on the solution for our soul. He's showing us that our souls aren't well. Just like a fever reveals that you're sick, our sin reveals that our soul is sick. Our sin nature, our sinful depravity has infected us with with sin and it's infected every part of our body and everyone that's around us. It's been like a cancer that has been growing within our bodies ever since we were kids. And so what his MRI of the soul is revealing that, that our souls have been infected and affected by sin. 
our thoughts, our hearts, our actions and words have been infected and affected by, by sin. What he's revealing, his MRI of the soul is revealing is that we are all under sin's power, which means we need another solution to overcome the, the sinful depravity that's in our hearts. We need a better solution than our willpower because our willpower keeps failing us. Well, he gives us that solution in verses 20 to 22. Verse 20, no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's the solution to the sin problem in our hearts, to the sinful depravity in our hearts. It's faith in Jesus. Paul says it's faith in Jesus. So after he builds this strong case where there is nobody who's perfect, there's nobody who hasn't sinned, there's nobody who who hasn't been unrighteous, he says, actually, there's one. There's one, one who's been sinless. There's one who's always been righteous. There's one who's always been faithful. And it's Jesus. He says, Jesus is the only one who is sinless. He's the only one who's righteous. He's the only one who's perfectly faithful. Therefore, he is the only one who can save and change the sinful depravity that's in our hearts. Now, think about who this is coming from. This is coming from Paul, who at one point was an enemy and a skeptic of Jesus, but then sees the resurrected Jesus with his own eyes and then experiences the life-saving, life-transforming power of Jesus for his own life. It wasn't Paul who started out seeking Jesus. He was a skeptic and enemy of Jesus. It was Jesus who sought out Paul. It wasn't Paul who saved and changed his own life. It was Jesus who came in and saved and changed his life. And he wants to do the same for me and he wants to do the same for you. But it's, it, we, we have to stop relying on our own willpower to save and change our hearts. We need to rely upon Jesus to save and change what our willpower has continually failed to save and change. What we need is a greater Savior than our sin. What we need is a greater Savior who can not only resist sin, but who has a power that is over sin instead of under sin like the rest of humanity. We cannot be the solution of this because the problem comes within us. It flows out of us. It's got to come from outside in. Jesus is that Savior. And Jesus is the Savior. He's our loving Savior who not only resisted sin, he lived the perfect life that we have not lived, and then he died the death that we deserve to die, paying the eternal price for our sins. When he died for our sins on the cross, and then he rose again on the third day, proving that his power is greater than our willpower. Jesus is our loving God, our righteous God, who has every right to judge us for our sins. But he's also our loving God who has the very power to save us from our sins. He, he, he declared us all guilty of sin, righteously. He declared that. But he also lovingly went to the cross for us and died for our sins so that we can have the forgiveness of sins. Paul says the only way for us to be saved and transformed is through faith in Jesus. Now, if we put our faith in him, does that mean that, that we're never going to stumble in sin again? Paul says, no, we, we will. We'll stumble and we'll even feel some of the consequences 
of that sin in this life. I talked about it last week, first wave, second wave. Right? We'll, we'll still feel some of the consequences of our sin in this life. We'll, we'll feel some of the, the consequences of, of turning away from Jesus in that, that moment. But Paul also writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, meaning it is Jesus who will remain faithful to saving and changing our sinful hearts, even on the days when we are unfaithful and remaining faithful to following him. He will still seek you. When you put your faith and trust in him, he will still seek you to lead you to repentance and to restore your faith in relationship with him again. So when we follow Jesus, following Jesus doesn't mean that, that we're going to walk in perfect righteousness. It means we're going to continually to grow in righteousness. Being a Christian and following Jesus doesn't mean that you're never going to sin or feel the consequences of sin in this life because you, you will. It means that Jesus will perfectly cover us in his righteousness, his perfect righteousness for eternal life. All right, so this is the big idea of the message. All right, let's have the worship team come on up, and, and, and here's the big idea. The big idea of the message is that you need a greater power to help you fix the sin problem within you. You and I both, we need a, a, you need a greater power within you to help fix the, the sin problem that's within you. And Jesus is that greater Savior with the greater power. What Paul has done in these first three chapters of Romans that we've broken down, all right, if, if, if this has felt like a heavy, heavy um, few weeks, heavy few chapters, well, there, the, his intent is for it to be that way because we, we have to recognize the MRI of our souls. I mean, if we sit here and act like, man, I'm all perfect and I'm all great and this and that, you know, and I, you know, I can do all this on my own, you're kidding yourself. In fact, your own self-righteous mentality of that proves that you're kidding yourself. It proves that you're not as great as you think you are because here you are thinking that you can do everything on your own and that you're this perfect person that I can. And some of us are so tired of relying on our own strength and power. God's going to let you feel the weight of that for a while as long as you want to keep rejecting him. It happens to me too. But we need to come to that place where we realize that, no, our willpower is just going to continually fail us. And so we need to rely on his power. And say, what Paul has been doing throughout these three chapters is really challenging the many different excuses we have for breaking the moral law of God. You know, God, I didn't know you. How can you hold me accountable for something that I didn't know? No, you knew. Paul says you knew. Because you still had a moral law in your conscience and you still failed to do the right thing that you knew was right in your conscience. Yeah, but I went to church, I read my Bible, I try to do good things and be a good person. Well, that's great. But it doesn't make you any better than the person who doesn't because you failed too. We have all failed, we've all sinned. Therefore, we are all in need of Jesus' saving and life-transforming grace. We've all sinned, we all deserve God's judgment. We all need his saving and life-transforming grace. So I want to be very clear on this. The Christian message is not about giving you a bunch of principles to live by. It is about giving you a savior to rely on. The Christian message 
isn't let me give you a bunch of religious laws, a bunch of post-it notes, a bunch of principles to live by. It's to give you a savior to rely on. What good is a bunch of principles on marriage, a bunch of principles on parenting, a, a bunch of principles on how to live a better life if you're going to fail to live out those principles? The Bible does give us some incredible principles on marriage, some incredible principles on parenting, some incredible principles on how to live a better life than the one we're currently living right now. But the primary message of the Bible isn't about giving you a bunch of principles. It's giving you a Savior who not only died on the cross for you and me for failing to live out his principles, but also to give us his grace and his power to help us live out those principles. That is the good news of the gospel. What we need isn't more willpower. What we need is the very power of Jesus Christ to work in and through our hearts. And so if you really want change in your life, then stop trying to be your own savior and rely on Jesus as your savior. If you really want to see change happen on the outside, rely on Jesus to change your heart from the inside. The more you rely on Jesus on the inside, the more you're going to see things starting to change on the outside. And so who have you been relying on? Whose power have you been relying on? Whose power will you rely on? Will you keep relying on your own willpower for salvation and transformation? Or will you rely on Jesus and his power for salvation and for your everyday transformation? Whose power will you rely on? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for the skeptic in the room or the skeptic watching online who says, none of this matters, none of this is point, none, none of this matters, you know, I, I, all these Christians doing this stuff, whatever, you know, I don't, I don't want anything, but God, Jesus, help to change and transform their heart right now in this moment. If there's been any truth that has been spoken into their hearts right now, let them receive it and respond to you and your grace and your mercy that you are speaking into their hearts and their lives right now, helping them to realize that they cannot save and transform in their heart. Their willpower can change some things, but not the deep-rooted issues in their life. May they cry out to you for salvation, first and foremost. And may that cry out for salvation turn into a complete reliance on you for daily transformation. Jesus, help those of us who are believers to come to a place where we will rely on you again. That you would draw our hearts closer to you. That we would wake up tomorrow morning and realize, wait, I can't, I can't face this day. The day is too heavy. The day is too hard. The day is too fierce. With my own sinful depravity and the sinful depravity of humanity and the worries and the struggles of this world, Jesus, I can't survive without you. Jesus, help the Christian draw near to you. Help us to draw deeper into our friendship with you. And we remember what a precious gift we have that we can communicate with you anytime, anywhere, even as we go throughout the day. Help us to rely on you for transformation. And Jesus, my, my heart is deeply broken over the darkness that exists not only in our lives and our relationships, but in our city, our country, and our world. Jesus, I'm speaking even directly of the darkness of what happened with Tyree Nichols 
Jesus, that I can't imagine the hurt and the pain that his family and friends are going through. People can have all kinds of political opinions that they want. But Lord, there was darkness in all of that. And Jesus, we pray for healing for his family, his friends who are grieving. I can't imagine having to witness something like that being done to a friend or a family member of mine. Jesus, I pray for healing for our country as the tensions of stuff like this, God, seem to erupt in that. I pray that as Christians, we would be be quick to listen and slow to speak and be mindful of the words that we, we send out on our social media. Being slow to jump on one, one social media herd to another. And Jesus, I pray for healing for our country. I pray for, for our law enforcement officers who wake up and they see that and they say to my, oh God, here we go. And they wake up and they got a target on their back. I can't imagine being a family member of somebody in law enforcement and now worrying about my, my spouse is now going out to trying to protect and to serve because they're one of the good law enforcement officers who are fighting against stuff like this. Jesus, please, man, we need, we need, we need your grace to push back darkness in our country and in our world. We need you. Provide healing where healing is needed. Provide your grace where your grace is needed. We can't do this on our own, Jesus love you, rely upon you. We submit our will to your will. Amen.